So uh, Bill's passing out our copy of the Psalm 32. If you don't have a Bible with you or an app or something, it makes it easier for you. Let's pray while he passes it out. Maybe we pray for some of these folks to come in, huh? Lord, it's been such a, in so many ways, it's been a, a roller coaster ride this week, from Monday through today. But we're grateful, Lord, that we've been able to come, we're able to come into the house of the Lord, to come into the presence of our God and King, who is with us, who, who is the God who knows our afflictions and understands and seen us, and you know those who are grieving and crying in Nashville, and you've seen them. For that, we're grateful. We pray that you hold them in your hands and continue to comfort them. We pray, for Father, for us as we get into Psalm 32, that our hearts would be strengthened and fortified and that we would be instructed and helped. And we ask you to, to uh, fill us with your spirit of truth. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so we're going to turn to Psalm 32. go ahead and read. The masculine of David, blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is a man against whom Yahweh counts no iniquity, in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For by day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. Selah. I acknowledge my sins to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgression to Yahweh, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Selah. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. Selah. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in Yahweh. Be glad in Yahweh and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Woohoo! That's right. That was Steve's version of that last verse. Woohoo! Yeah, there you go. And we're not sure what Selah means, by the way, but it just keeps showing up. We think it means something possibly like, uh, you know, meditation or a pause or whatever, but it's there, and I'll just go ahead and read it. Actually, in the Hebrew, it's actually the last word of each verse, so it's not set off on the side. It's over here with the verse, and so I just feel more compelled to read it. Um, so anything that you saw, anything that maybe that connected it to previous psalms, anything that connects it to the next psalm, there is. Um, anything that you saw within it that maybe caught your attention, repetitions, anything like that? Yes. Ah, uh, you know, we may have, yes, indeed. Sure enough, back up in uh, chapter 31, verse 10. Very good. In fact, I want to make a note. Yeah? Uh-huh. Okay. Anybody else? Other things? Fred? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It could have been the fall of Bathsheba or other things. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. And that's interesting. By the way, it's important to keep like Psalm 31 in mind when you're reading earlier Psalms where he talks about, in my integrity, I did no wrong. Well, this is the guy who turns around and is willing to confess his sin. So he's obviously not talking about 
sinless integrity. He's talking about in all, you know, various things. You have to keep remember where this is and, and that this is there. So good. Anybody else? Anything within the psalm? Maybe steadfast love. Yeah, yeah. Steadfast love is a chasid. Sorry, chasid is a big word all the way through the Old Testament, and so it shows up again. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Anybody else? All right, great. All right, well, let's get a jump in here. So I'm calling it the blessed. I could also call it something else, and I'll mention it in just a minute. Uh, but I'm just calling the psalm the blessed, because that's how it begins, and it begins repetitively. So the blessed, or blessed... So notice this is kind of how the psalm breaks down. You could actually tease, or you really could tease this out in more detail in reference to more point or more um, subject matter. But the momentum, verses 1 through 5, the moral in verses 6 through 9, and the implementation, verses 10 and 11. Okay? That's how I'm breaking down this psalm, if you want to see that up here. Um, and so the momentum, as uh, you look at verses 1 through 5 specifically, Blessed is the one whose transgressions forgiven, whose sin is covered, etc. And then verse 3, For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long, etc. And then verse 5, I acknowledge my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. There's, there's a momentum here in the psalm in these first five verses. So the first two verses really seem to be the theme of this psalm. So if we get lost in the details, just go back to verse 1 and 2. That's always helpful for me because it's easy to get lost in the details. They seem to be the theme of the psalm. Um, So where have you heard verses 1 and 2? Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom Yahweh counts no iniquity, in whose spirit there is no deceit. Where else have you heard that? That Those two verses, I mean verbatim. I know it's early in the morning. We can do this. Ah, you're getting close. So in Romans 8, 1, there's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And a few chapters earlier, Donnie was going to say this too, so I'm helping him out here. In a few chapters earlier, in chapter 4, Paul quotes these two verses as he's building his case on what justification means. And so go to Romans chapter 8 and verse 4, uh, chapter 4, verses 7 and 8. Romans chapter 4, verses 7 and 8. And so I'm going to begin with um, verse 4. So Romans 4, starting at verse 4. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his, due, as, it, as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven, whose sins are covered, Blessed is a man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness, etc. And he just goes on from there. So he's building his case for uh, justification being an Old Testament um, a gospel principle that runs all the way into the New Testament. And there he is. He, he kind of puts his tent peg in with... Uh, uh, Psalm chapter 32, verses 1 and 2, okay? And so I think that's really important. That's very helpful. Um, So we just answered this question. How are the two verses used in Psalm 4, verses 7 and 8? So in what way then, recognizing how it comes up and how Paul reads it, uh, in what way then does this shape your understanding of this psalm? In what way does this shape your understanding? Romans 4, 7, and 8. What what way does this shape your understanding of the psalm? 
See if I can help you. <laughs> Patrick Henry Reardon was an Episcopal priest and became Eastern Orthodox. He wrote a book called Christ in the Psalms. I've quoted from it before. I thought this was very uh, helpful. He says, the correct interpretation of certain psalms comes more readily than others and the task is rendered easier still if a psalm's meaning has already been made plain in the New Testament. The New Testament is, after all, the key to the full, that is to say, Christian understanding of the old. When the New Testament tells us the meaning of, of some passage of the Old Testament, then the matter of authentic interpretation for Christians is settled. And so the point is, is this for us, is that because how Paul uh, brings Jesus in and God's act of justification in as crucial as part of this psalm, then that's partly how you should hear that, how you should read it. It does shape how you understand that psalm, okay? It is that God's steadfast love endures forever. And what does that mean? It means that people who cannot fix themselves are forgiven, and that takes you right to Romans chapter 3, 4, 5, and 6, and, and 8. Right? Do you see what I'm saying? That shapes then your, your understanding and the reading of that psalm. Okay? Any questions before I move on with this section here? Yes, Fred. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And and that's a yeah, and that's good. I mean that already that, and that's why I think Paul uh found that those two verses a good foundation for where he's going is it it's not counted towards you. Is it there? Did you sin? Yes. But it's not no longer counted. So then you go to Colossians chapter 2 and Christ of the cross wipes out the record of debt that dogmatically stood against you, right? So you start hearing, oh, this all piles in right out of Psalm 32, verses 1 and 2, okay? This is pretty good. Great. And that, by the way, is part of justification. Justification is forgiveness of sins. That's not all it is. Before we would take a little issue with John Wesley, he thought justification was only forgiveness of sins. We would actually push back on him and say, no, it's actually more than that. It's, you know, and then you go to Romans, you can't miss it, right? But it, it does include forgiveness of sins. The forgiveness of a debt, the record of debt that stood against you was wiped out at the cross. Okay? So the momentum continues. There's a play. Uh, verse 1 and 2 will play on verse 5 very heavily, and Steve kind of touched on it. It's really interesting. If you take your pen and you mark all the words for uh, various kinds of sin, so transgression, I'm looking at verse 1 and 2. Transgression, which is one Hebrew word, sin, which is another Hebrew word, and then iniquity, which is another Hebrew word. You'll notice they come back up in verse 5, all three of those, okay? So David is, in one sense, David is piling on every aspect of sin that you could possibly do. Okay, and then he brings it back up again in verse 5. So there's that play. There's also play, and Fred kind of touched on this. Notice verse 1. What's the good news in verse 1? His sin is what? It's forgiven and uh, is not, or it's covered. But notice when you get to verse 5, what was his problem before? That's implied here, but what was his problem before? He says, now I acknowledge my sin to you and I... Did not cover. So before, we'll get into this in just a minute. Before, between, uh, in verse two, uh, 3 and 4, he's covering his own sin. Right? And that's not a good thing. And we'll talk about that here in a second. But it's good when God covers our sin. It's not good when you cover your sin. Okay? Let me say it again. It's good when God covers your sin. It's not good when you cover your sin. Alright? So do you see how... How the how how the these verses the, the themes are starting they flow in together in this song, okay, great. Now before we get there, before we get to verse five, we've got to wade through verse three. So let me do this. All kinds of things we could say, but 
Um, look at how verse 2 ends. Somebody read the, the very last line of verse 2. In whose spirit there is no deceit. Okay? And so, you know, we might immediately go on to think, well, that means, you know, there's never been a lie or anything. But, I, but it clearly seems to me that David is now going to, starting in verse 3 and 4, talk about his deceit. Okay? In verse 3 and 4, he's going to talk about his deceit. And what was David's deceit? When you look at verse 3 and 4, how was David being deceitful? Yeah, he covered his own sin. He was being silent. He was hiding his sin, keeping his mouth shut, not being willing to confess and own up and acknowledge his own sin. That was the, the deceit, right? So he was covering it. I, 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 uh, when I kept silent, my bones wasted away, my groaning all day. Um, day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up. But that's the deceit. And so then when you get to verse 5, the deceit now is he, he, he's broken in that sense. He stops deceiving. I acknowledge my sin. So the point is, blessed is the one in whom there is no spirit of this. In his spirit, there is no deceit. He's not hiding his sin. He's not covering his sin. He actually owns up to it and acknowledges it. Does that make sense? I think that's extremely important because there's a lot of sin covering that goes on, and it's not always God's sin covering. If you know what I mean, okay. And then, of course, we've seen the connections between the words transgression, sin, and iniquity. Uh, that will come up in verse 5. But, but as you look at verse 3 and 4, what, what seems to be a connection that you see in verse 3 and 4? What seems to be going on there? What's kind of a cause and effect, maybe? Yeah. Yeah. And so the not confessing sin, hiding it, so therefore he's, inter- he's keeping it down inside. And notice the physical... Now, maybe he's speaking hyperbole, but possibly not, and I'll explain in a minute. But notice he's talking, he's describing the effect of him hiding and covering his sin, his deceitfulness, as physical. Right? He's wasting away. He's, he, his bones are aching even, right? Does everybody see that? Okay. As Proverbs puts it, whoever conceals his transgression will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. Blessed is the one who fears the Lord always, fears Yahweh always, but whoever hardens his heart will fall into calamity. I think that that pattern shows up in the Old Testament and it shows up when we get into the New Testament a little bit as well. But there, there can be a physical... Uh, there can be a physical result of our sin and especially of us hiding our sin and as it nags us and we fight it and we keep it down, we keep hiding it, there can be physical results of our sin. Okay? So sometimes, sometimes our name and claim it folks are not wrong. They just overemphasize the stuff in a wrong way. Right? Sometimes our sickness or our, our failing health could be a result of sin not confess sin. This is why James, in James 5, what does James say in chapter 5 at the end? If somebody is sick, let him call on the elders, will anoint him with oil, pray for him, and then it says what? Anybody remember James 5? Pray for them and... Huh? Yeah, there's, it could be laying on hands, yeah. But it's... And if they confess their sins, they'll be forgiven, Right? And so there, James makes a connection that sometimes it does happen that way. And we, we shouldn't shy away from that. We just, it makes our skin crawl, though, when, when some folks just say, all illness is a result of your sin, you know, and then like Job's friends, great suffering must mean great sinner, right? And our skin crawls rightly. But there is a reality in which that can happen, Okay. And I think that's what you're seeing in, in the psalm. Um, so how does David describe his cover-up? Oh, wait, wait, before I get there. Let's do a New Testament thing real quick. Can you think of anything in the New Testament where a sin, where a specific sin maybe, actually led to sickness and loss of life? 
Okay, yeah, Ananias and Sapphira. That's a pretty... Wow, yes, I would be thinking that. That's, yeah, there you go, right? Very good. All right, can you think of another one? Yeah, Judas, yeah. Yes, 1 Corinthians chapter 11. They're breaking fellowship. Remember, the, in, in 1 Corinthians 11, to improperly take the Lord's Supper, to not discern the Lord's body, was in the context of the fact they were splitting. The wealthier were over here, and the poor folks, well, you get your own bread and wine for communion. You know, we're not going to have anything to do with you. We're going to eat our own. And Paul is saying, I cannot praise you for this. And then he actually says, when you get down to verse, uh, 1 Corinthians 11, verse uh, 30, maybe, 31, something like that. He says, that is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. All right? And so I just want to make sure we understand that it is a possibility. That's why when you do get a good sickness, when you really get a real good sickness, right? There's nothing wrong for you with you actually doing some soul reflection. It doesn't mean your sickness is because you sin, but it's a good time to reflect. Okay? There's a... Huh? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's a good pra- It is a good practice. Because it... Yeah. So anyways, there you go. And so how does David describe his cover-up? As you look at um, verse 3, 4, and maybe even verse 5, how does he describe his cover-up? Yeah, yeah, the result is it dries up his strength. Huh? Yeah, he kept silent. Yeah, he felt God's hand heavy on him. His internal angst, he was groaning all day long. Okay, very good. And then the opposite of that was when you get to verse 5, now there's no longer hiding it, covering it up. He's actually acknowledging it and confessing it. Okay? The attributing what? The waste, his bones wasting away. Yeah, I mean, you know, God is involved in that in the sense that there's, there is, as a discipline, maybe. Yeah. Carry what? Yeah, I mean, so if you think of it as a fatherly discipline. So you think again, go back to 1 Corinthians 11. He says, um, um, when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. And he's... He's attributing some of that sickness and illness as part of God's judging his children as a father, disciplining his children. And so I think that there's, there's not a hard line. I think that David immediately going in both directions is probably very fitting. Okay? Fred. Yeah, yeah. 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 Yeah, I mean if, if Selah means meditation or pause or something like that, it's very fitting there. There are places there's some places I go, why is that Selah there if it means pause, you know? But here it actually seems to be fitting. Every one of these three paragraphs where it comes up, so Alright, and so then David moves to confessing a sin. And notice how he describes this confessing of his sin. It's in verse 5. How does he describe it? Yeah, I'm going to uncover it. I'm going to acknowledge it. I confess it. And then what's the result? What, what's the end there? Yeah, he forgave the iniquity of my sin. Um, I think Ralph Davis is very helpful here when we think about our, the need to confess and yet not necessarily seeing it as a cause of God's forgiveness. Okay? Here's what I mean. 
Ralph says, I need to touch on this matter of confession. Obviously, David is saying that confession was a condition of his forgiveness. However, it's crucial to see that a condition is not a cause. Confession is essential, but it does not convey forgiveness. That can only come from the one who has been wrong. It's the Lord who brings forgiveness. The confession is a condition of it, but it doesn't, it doesn't, doesn't cause forgiveness. I'll put it to you in a different way. This goes back to my Church of Christ days, right? Where in the Church of Christ, I could do these five things. I had to do these five things to be saved. Hear, repent, confess, believe, and and confess Christ. Does this sound familiar? Yes. The five had the hand. Speak to the hand. Anyways, and then you had to do all, continue to do all the right things. The other 167,000 things they didn't tell you about when you first joined, came in the Church of Christ, right? And so, but it was always presented, it seemed like, presented as if I could get God to forgive me and because I did all the right things. And so my, I actually got to preach a sermon and I was not long with this land, in this land after this sermon. But I was preaching out of Isaiah um, where God says, You're, you weary me with, the, with your sins. Right? It's really a startling passage. And then I said to, the, to this congregation, I said, God does not have to forgive you. You can do all the right things. God does not have to forgive you. And you can hear the pews creak. And actually, have somebody afterwards say, well, then, but, 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 but I, if we do all the right things and you didn't have to forgive us, then how are we even forgiven and saved? I said, have you ever heard of the word grace? Right? And so I think that that's kind of what Ralph is pointing out. We have to be careful about how we make God out. I confess my sins, so God has to forgive me. You know, no, the forgiveness comes because of His graciousness. Confession is a condition, but it's not a cause. I think that's a helpful, for us, it's a helpful point. Okay? Vain repetition, Matthew 6. Yeah. Yeah, very good. Good job, Steve. Um, I think first off, for us to recognize he doesn't have to is what we need to remember. On the other side, um, so he's not beholden to us, right? And so, uh, but I think on the other side, I mean, if you want to talk about when would God, when could God, when would God not forgive us? Well, that, that, then we go into other aspects in reference to, uh, are we really honest about this, you know, and so forth. And so, but I think that to answer your question, because it's a, it's a, it's one of those questions like, can God ever make something too big he can't pick up? I mean, it's one of those things, it's like, he doesn't have to forgive us, he does. Right. He's faithful. It was what you put it out earlier, his steadfast love. So God forgives us because he's faithful. That's the point in 1 John 1, 9. He is, he is faithful and just to forgive us of all of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It's not he's beholden to us and he does it because, you know, we did all the right things. It's because he's faithful, his promise, etc. And he's just, that's an interesting word in 1 John 1, 9, the reverence to forgiveness. He's faithful and just. He's just because... He's made this promise that he would do these things. Does that make sense? Sure. Yes, yes. If you heard me say other things, anything else other than that, then I misspoke. But yes, it's just that sometimes as humans, having been there, maybe nobody else, sometimes we feel like we can make God, we can barter with God and make him beholden to us, and he's not. That was my point. Yeah, yeah, yes, 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 yes. And so yes, so just confessing is is itself could be nothing, right? So the guy that confessed to his wife, he committed adultery. He asked her to forgive him. I mean, I lived through this. I had to walk this, with this guy through this. He confessed to his wife. He committed adultery. He asked her to forgive him. And then two weeks later, he's in my office boohooing and saying, well, I asked her to forgive me. She didn't forgive me. I said, well, let me, can I see your cell phone? I want to see if that girl's phone number is off your phone. 
What's that got to do with anything? Oh, well, no, yeah, I'm just going to tell you, yeah, you're in a mess, you know. So, yeah, it was, it was not a happy conversation. But, yeah, that's exactly the idea, right? Good. All right, so the momentum still going on. David piles up the three different Hebrew words to get across the breadth of sin. We already looked at that, transgression, iniquity, and sin. And he even brings out the importance of not covering and covering. I already pointed that out. Um, in fact, verses 3 to 4 doesn't use cover, but looks like a cover-up. That's the whole point of verse 3 and 4, I think, is his deceit. He's covering up. That's why when he says in verse 5, I did not cover. God covers, I did not cover. Okay? But I think that's important for us to remember. When we cover up our sins, that's a bad thing. When God covers our sins, glory, hallelujah. Okay? Yes? Oh, yeah, there is. Yes. Yeah, there's, I mean, there's little nuances to each one. So a transgression, you know, is, um, um, uh, let's see, uh, transgression. So he could have even had the word trespass, which would have taken a, which would have been another set of nuances. So transgression is not doing what you're supposed to do, right? Iniquity is actually perversion, twisting and mangling something. So he's just piling on those words, but they all have little nuances of differences, you know. Right, that's my point. That's my point. When we cover up our sin, that's a bad thing. When God covers our sin, that's a good thing. Yes. Great. Yeah, right. Yeah. Yeah. You just did it. Good job. Enough said. Great. All right, so then the moral. The morals versus six. Yes, David. You're not a very good American. I just want you to know. Because in America, we think it's a right that we not feel any grief. Right? Things like that. And so you're right, though. I think to recognize that it can be a gift is good. In fact, notice the gift. As you look through his confession, as he acknowledges his confession, does anybody see? I mean, I see something very peculiar here that is truly, I think, is a sign of, of real confession and repentance. Okay? What does he not do when he's acknowledging, verse 5, when he's acknowledging his sin? What is he not, what is something, something he's not doing? He didn't cast any blame anywhere else. He didn't say the reason why I sinned is because, and then it's 27 excuses or whatever, right? Or, or it's Fred's fault that I sinned or whatever. Ah, <laughs> yes. You're the man. Yeah. 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 Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. But I think that that's helpful just realizing he owns. He takes ownership that it's his sin. He doesn't say it's the government's fault or whatever. Put anything in there. I don't care. It's his sin. And he he acknowledges it. That's huge. Okay. So, moving on. So the moral, 
So Aesop's fables have a concluding moral in case you miss the point. As you read Aesop's fables, well, the, um, Psalm 32 has the moral. The moral has uh, two points, okay? And so first off is that Yahweh is worth coming clean to, okay? Therefore, let anyone who is godly offer prayer at a time when he, you may be found, surely in the rushing of great waters, they shall not reach him. You are, hiding, you are a hiding place for him. You preserve him from trouble, and you surround him with shouts of deliverance. God, it, the Lord is worth coming clean to. That's the first moral, if you want to use an Aesop's fable kind of thing. Okay. Uh, so verse 6 and 7 then reverberate well with a Charles Wesleyan. I love the description here of an arroyo or a wadi actually flooding and you're stuck in the middle of it and the Lord picks him up and takes him out of or preserves him in the rushing water. Now most of you don't have to live with that, but when I was in Kerrville, Texas, um, it could rain up the Guadalupe, up in the, the hill country mountains, far, far away from us. And the next thing you would know, you would hear the rumbling and inevitably you would probably be in the low water crossing when you heard the rumbling and you look over to the right and coming down from the west is this 20-foot wall of water or 30-foot wall of water shoving trees and rocks and everything down and washes people away. Happens all the time in that area. But that's kind of the picture there. So think about this Charles Wesley hymn. Jesus, lover of my soul, let, uh, let me to thy bosom fly. While the nearer waters roll, while the tempest still is high, hide me, O my Savior, hide, till the storm of life is past, safe into the haven guide. O receive my soul at last. Other refuge have I none. Hangs my helpless soul on thee. Leave all, leave me not alone. Still support and comfort me. All my trust on thee is stayed. All my help from thee I bring. Cover my defenseless head with the shadow of thy wing. Thou, O Christ, art all I want. More than all in thee I find. Raise the fallen, cheer the faint, heal the sick and lead the blind. Just and holy is thy name. I am all unrighteousness. False and full of sin I am. Thou art full of truth and grace. And so that's the first moral of the psalm is that God, that this God, this God of steadfast love, Yahweh, is worth coming clean to. You can trust Him. You can. You have every reason to feel safe coming clean to him. Or, you, know, you understand what I mean by coming clean, right? Opening up and, and being honest. And so the second moral moves on, and it's basically, don't be a buffoon. That's verse 8 and 9. Don't be a buffoon. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding which must be curbed with a bit and a bridle or it will not stay near you. Don't be a buffoon. Basically what David seems to be saying is don't be a buffoon like I was. Go back to verse 3 and 4. Don't be a, an ignorant, stubborn mule like I was back in verse 3 and 4. Okay? All stubborn like a bullheaded mule or a horse you can lead to water but it can't, you can't get him to drink. Don't be like that. That seems to be the second moral. Now, I've always heard verse 8 and 9 as though I, I, mean, I always thought that it was actually the Lord himself had specifically broken in in verse 8 and 9 and spoken directly in those verses. But actually getting ready for this class and going back through and pondering it again, um, it's clearly David is saying here himself, here's the lesson that I have learned and I am passing it on to you. I have walked through this I've learned this lesson. God is worth coming clean to. Don't be an idiot and hide your sin. Let the Lord hide your sin. Run to Him. Quit hiding it. And I think that's exactly how verse 8 and 9 fit into that psalm. Now. Any, any questions or any observations, clarifications, consternation, conflagrations, any of those shouldn't. Does everybody see that? Does that make sense? Okay. Sir? Okay. Steve and I, great minds, all that stuff. And so then the implementation, verse 10 and 11, the implementation, 
if David is, if the main point of the whole psalm is verse 1 and 2, blesses man whose sin is covered, his transgression is forgiven, etc. If that's the whole main point, then the implementation fits the main point. It's the whole, it's, it's where you would expect it to go. First off, verse 10, there's bad news for some that's good news for others. The bad news for some, what's the bad news? Sorrow for whom? Yeah, the one who doesn't repent. I think that's the point of the wicked here is someone who didn't listen to David and continues to hide their sin. That's what he's saying, is that sorrow is, is waiting for them. Okay? And you know this. You run across this. How many times have you run across your, your aunt or your uncle and maybe they've got some gambling addiction or they've got an alcohol addiction or something like that and you're just going, can't you see you're destroying your life? What? You know, that's kind of the response. What? Right? And you go, come on, surely you can see it. See what? Right? And then they get defensive or, or whatever. Or, well, you know, I wouldn't drink so much if you wouldn't nag me so much. I mean, you know, I mean, it's just all the different dynamics that go on. Right? And you realize, do you not see you are about to destroy yourself, your family, your career, everything about you? What? Right? I mean, it's like that. I bet you Wes could tell you stories. He was at the Salvation Army at rehab. He, he has a few of those stories that he saw there, too. Right? And so that's who I think exactly who, in the psalm, who the wicked are when he says, many are the sorrows of the wicked. There's sorrow coming for them because, and they're already building it up. Okay? And so then the opposite is the person who actually listens to David's counsel and finds that the Lord is worth coming clean to. And so what happens... But steadfast love surrounds, what language? Surrounds the one who trusts in Yahweh. Think of a dad or a mom embracing their little child, you know. Steadfast love surrounds. What great language. So there's bad news there, but there's good news there. And the bad news is not meant, it's never meant to gloat over someone who's going to suffer. It's always stated. This is, uh, this is interesting to me. It's put out there for even the wicked to hear. Why? Huh? Yes. Gives them the opportunity again to turn. The Bible's, I mean, as I, I say, I, I've said often, don't always say here, but I have said before, that the road to hell is littered with mercy rocks. And you stub your toe and kick your, and break and you know and stump your toe and everything all the way to hell with all this mercy all around you. The scripture is an example of that where bad news, but it didn't have to be bad news. You can turn because there's steadfast love that surrounds those who trust in the Lord. Come this way, right? So how extensive is God's steadfast love? We already said that surrounds. Can anybody think of any other illustrations of surrounding that? actually is warm and encouraging to you, something that surrounds. Oh, yeah, like a mother hen. Yeah. Yeah. So when I often pray, um, when I've been asked to pray for police officers or guys in the military and stuff, I often, you will often hear me say, oh Lord, be, so, be closer to them than their body armor. Right? That body armor surrounds them. Be closer to them than that body armor. And that's the thinking I have is right there. All right, so based on the good news of Psalm 32, how should it be implemented? Verse 11. Yes, praise and thanksgiving. What did you say back there? Be glad and rejoice. Say woohoo with Steve. Yes. Right. Right? And notice how exuberant verse 11 is. I mean, some of you people are more exuberant at an OU game than you are with Jesus sometimes. You know what I'm saying? It's just like, ah, Right? But there's a, that, that's exuberant rejoicing. 
right? And so there is a there is a very valid place for that kind of thing. Hopefully, the kids, by the way, when they come in today during the assembly, they're going to have little palm branches in the middle of service, and they'll be saying with great exuberance, "Hosanna!" <laughs> Cheer them on, right? Because it's supposed to be really exuberant. So, we'll see, you know how you remember what it was like when you were. Well, you may not know. But you may not remember, but when you were a kid, you get really embarrassed, just like you start talking like a little mouse. So, cheer them on. And so notice how verse 11 then erupts in the Psalm 33. I just want to point this out. So let me read verse 11 and then the first verse of, verse thir- of chapter, Psalm 33. Be glad in Yahweh and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Shout for joy in Yahweh, O you righteous, praise befits the upright. So verse 11 opens the door, unlocks it, throws it open, and says, let's move on to the next psalm. There we go. All right, so lessons learned. As you were working through Psalm 32, lessons learned. Don't cover your sin. Let God be the one who covers right? Yeah. What else? What other lessons learned? Yeah. Amen. What else? Any other lessons learned? Yes. Yeah. Yes. The longer you hold on to it, the worse you feel. Yes. Yeah, right, right, right. Yeah. Yeah. And that's the answer right there. We're the frozen chosen for a reason. <laughs> okay. Now, I agree with you. I, yeah, no, I agree with you. Part of the problem is, is that Sometimes the exuberance is at the wrong time. Like when we're supposed to be receiving and, and like for example during sermons, for example, right? And so we're supposed to be listening and receiving. But there is a place in that uh, where there can be some exuberance, but you have to then you have to think about others around you. But then there are other times like singing. Right? It's a perfect time when the song says so, it's a perfect time to be exuberant, for example. Right? So you don't want to be exuberant when you're singing a lamentation. You know what I'm saying? I remember when we were at seminary and Duncan Rankin would make us sing the Psalter. He had a professor that did the same thing, didn't he? So we'd sing the Psalter, yeah. And the tune to this to one of the lamentation psalms was horribly happy. And he would say, gentlemen, I, we just cannot sing that tune. Nobody's happy that their eyeballs are coming out and they're crying with, you know, crying their eyes out. We're going to change it to Jesus, lover of my soul, that tune, and it fit. You know, it was perfect. So, so we can... We can misapply that, but, but, I mean, you know, Presbyterians, we're all, we are what we are. You've seen the meme out there, Presbyterians who are happy at a sermon? Pentecostals who hate a sermon? You know, it's a funny, it's a funny meme, you know, it's just hilarious. So, a little bit more liberty, yeah, I think that'd be good. Lessons learned, anybody else? Yeah, the confession is actually just part of the repentance. Yes. And I think that's extremely important. Right? So you go back to 2 Corinthians chapter 7, that godly sorrow produces repentance unto salvation, but then there's a worldly sorrow that produces death. And so the sorrow, maybe even the confession, may not actually be part. How do you know if it's real repentance? It's really as time goes by, things, you know, actions that have changed. Right? Great. Good. All right. So, how is Jesus maybe the central piece of this psalm in some way? He's the one who covers our sins. 
we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. 1 John 1, 7. Okay, good. How else? If you think about verse 1 and 2, and you think of, happen to think about Romans chapter 4 and justification, then score, you got it. And you were thinking that. I know you were. You just didn't mention it yet. So. Good. So describe ways this psalm encourages you. What are some ways this psalm encourages you? Yes. Okay. Anybody else? Other, thing, other ways this psalm encourages you? Yeah, yeah. Doesn't qualify, uh, would you say again, it doesn't qualify the level of sin? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, there's not venial mortal sins, you know, and those mortal sins, I don't know. That's touch and go, right? Yeah, very good. All right, lots of other lessons. Uh, God is worth coming clean to. Uh, if you think about a way that Psalm encourages us, God is worth coming clean to no need to hide it from him. You can't hide it anyways. So quit thinking you are. <laughs> right? All right, so as we prepare to enter God's assembly to worship him, I invite you, one and all, be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy. I'm looking right at you. Shout for joy and all, all you upright in heart. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord God, for this memorial, this reminder, this Ebenezer stone that you have set up in our life right here, Psalm 32, to know that God has helped us to this point, that Lord, you're the one that we can come clean to. Forgive us for, forgive us not only of our sins, but forgive us for the knuckleheadedness of hiding our sins and not confessing them to you, thinking we can hide them. Lord, help us to uncover our sins and trust you to cover them. You are a God whose steadfast love surrounds us. And so, Lord, we, we run to you. You're the one who pre preserves us, even in the rushing waters and storms. You're the one who holds us up. And so, Lord, as we get ready now to enter into your assembly, I pray for each and every one of us that we would hearken to David, we would hearken to your spirit who is speaking through David, that we would be glad in Yahweh, we would rejoice, um, and we would shout for joy. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you.